Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt. Oh, look at my front butt. <laughs> show 
So we did, uh, that was Buns and The Spy Who Did It Better, and we put those both on the Blu-ray. So they got a, <laughs> now you're they got a win. Now you right because he don't have it. <laughs> no, no, I What's don't. That? I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, that's so, the first one I, go ahead, Carl. No, no, you go ahead. Finish up, and then I'll kick in. I was going to say, yeah, Polish Vampire was the first one I showed because actually USA actually showed it on Up All Night. I remember that. They ran it for, I believe, two years, which was a big shock to all of us because, you know, we shot the movie for like $2,500 on Super 8 movie film, and it was never really intended to be made as a as a movie to sell. We made it as a showcase. But we got lucky. You know, the timing was kind of right. It was uh, home video was new. There weren't a lot of made for home video productions. You know, they were trying to scoop up movies from the studios. And those were, you know, they were kind of reluctant about that uh, as far as studios giving up their movies to be played in in people's homes. So here we had a, a feature film that was ready to go. And we snatched it up. We sold it to home video, sold it to USA Network. And, um, uh, Surprisingly, it still it still has its fans today. That's always very sweet. Yeah, those must be in the good old days. We were like, oh, we got this movie. It's amateurish. We don't have nothing else. Here's some money. Please let us have it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think. Well, they, well we you know, Stephen and I talk about you know it's it's all about product, and and when there are new ways of seeing things, there's always. This, you know, where they want to suck up as much product as, as possible, and then of course right. when Netflix and streaming, then they start doing their own stuff, and then it hurts the independents, which is unfortunate. Well, it is. But you came in at yeah, the right time, Mark, with that. Things definitely changed, but um, you know, back then we didn't really tell anybody that we shot it for nothing. You know, we we kind of marketed it as a regular movie. And we had a sort of a distributor that picked it up and said, you know, let's not tell anybody the format. Let's not tell anybody the budget. We're just going to try and see what we can do. And they got lucky and managed to get it out there. But uh, to do something like that today probably wouldn't happen. I think it's a lot tougher now because there's, you know, everybody's out shooting movies with their iPhones, you know, so it's not that, uh, it's not that easy to get your product out there these days, even though, the platforms are out there. There's, you know, there's 500 different streaming networks out, so you could always mm-hmm. get it out somewhere. But you know, to try and turn a profit, that's a different story. Exactly. Now, when you started and and you were doing Polish Vampire and and that, you did this for for a small amount of money. How did you finance it? How did you make the decision? Okay, we're going to do this. <clears throat> pull our resources. Just tell us a little bit about. You know, how that all came together. Well, I mean, I've been making a lot of short films prior to that. Uh, You know, I made a whole bunch of them in upstate New York where I was raised. And then when I moved out here, I worked at Universal Studios for a few years and realized that nothing was really happening career-wise. So I went out and bought a bunch of Super 8 film movie equipment and just got together with a bunch of friends that I met at Universal. And, you know, some of them were striving to be actors or crew members, they wanted to get into the film industry. I have a good friend who does visual effects. So we kind of pulled our resources together, and I said, let's just try making movies like I used to do back in upstate New York. 
and we got, uh, you know, we started with a movie called Buns, which was about a guy that uh, kills people that eats hamburgers, and he goes on this murderous frenzy whenever he sees a hamburger. So that movie ran about 20, <laughs> 20, 20 minutes or so. Um, and then, then we did a James Bond parody called The Spy Who Did It Better, which ran about 45 minutes. And, you know, and they were all shot for a few hundred dollars, you know, and because um, the only expense at that time really was uh, the film stock and the processing. Because, you know, back then, uh, a roll of Super 8 film might have cost about $5, and the processes might have cost another $5. So you're figuring $10 for every two and a half minutes of exposed film. And that ran up the budget, but, you know, ran it up to a couple hundred dollars. And, uh, you know, so we really didn't think about, well, we're going to spend a little bit of money here. It was just something that we enjoyed doing, you know, friends of mine. And I'm still friends with a lot of the same people that go back to the early days of our filmmaking. And, you know, we've never really lost the passion for it. So does that answer your question or did I leave anything out? No, no, no. that's that's more than enough. That's, that's good. I think Dave Friedman said it the best. He said this guy walked up to him with a no-budget film and he asked the guy, how much is your budget? And he said, uh, and he's like, no, $10 million. No matter how much you uh-huh. spend, tell the studios you spent $10 million on it or something like that. That way you're guaranteed to get your money back and they won't think it's a no-budget production and ignore it. Right. Well, I think our, our throwback used to be under a million, we'd always say. You know, how much you shoot for yeah. under a million? And and the thing is, if everybody that worked on our projects got paid what they were worth, then we probably wouldn't be lying, you know, because we get a lot of people that work on projects for nothing and, uh, you know, some very talented people that are willing to do these projects. So in that regard, you know, because we're not physically paying, we're, that doesn't mean that we're not getting our money's worth, you know what I mean? People do uh, by the way, I have a cat that may be meowing every once in a while, so I hope that's not a big Well, I have a dog does. over here howling, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. But your your so. work never did look cheap, unlike some of them that I've seen, like a boarding house was shot for a lot more than most of your work, and it looks horrible. Really? Well, you know, it's like everybody can have a paintbrush and a canvas and people are going to paint differently. And I think a lot of it, you know, if I look at some of my earlier films, I can look back at them and kind of cringe. Like, I know you like Nudist Colony of the Dead, but I think that's one of the the worst looking films I've ever created because we used such lousy equipment at the time. And we had so many problems with the cameras and the film and all that. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen the remastered version I did a few years back where we went. Yes, I actually kind of, did. I, yeah. That, that yeah. I do have. Oh, so I tried to fix it, you know, to make it a little bit more palatable. But uh, you can only polish a turd so much. So as, as far as that <laughs> movie goes, uh, I would really love to see that movie remade with, you know, with real film or at least. Uh, you know, real technology that looks better than it did when we did that one. But uh, that may or may not ever happen. You know, I, I know directors take a look at the visuals and, 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 and all that, but what I get from your films uh, and what I've seen of, of your films is this wonderful sense of humor. 
and just a really what? fun way of looking at things and totally on PC, but still really kind of like sweet natured, which is interesting. Well, yeah, I think, you know, we, we, I never uh, make a movie specifically to piss people off. I mean, I make a movie to entertain people now because I have such a warped sense of humor. My style of humor might uh, offend people like family guy or South park or, you know, any of those kinds of shows. There's some people that can watch, uh, South Park, and they can see the cleverness in it, and then there's other people that'll look at it and they can't get past the vulgarity, you know. So the the earlier films we did, I just liked to make these films as as weird as I could because I you know I enjoy weird movies myself, and you know being a fan of early John Landis films or Woody Allen films, you know when anything goes, um, that's kind of the the sort of movie I used to like to try and create. And that's sort of where we started. And then, you know, we've kind of toned things down a little bit over the years, only probably because I just got older and less funny. You know, the older you get, the less funny you tend to become. So it's sort of like, well, all right, we'll uh, we'll go in a different direction or whatever. But but it's always to entertain. My movies really never have a message or a meaning or a moral or anything like that. It's just uh, pure and simple entertaining, hopefully. Mm-hmm. No, well, absolutely. Absolutely. One message of uh, Curse of the Queer Wolf is don't get bit on the butt by a transsexual that can turn you into another transsexual. Just well, there is that message, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I must say you have a thing about being bitten on the butt because that, that happens in Rectuma, too, with the humping bullfrog. Uh, <laughs> you're right. I never. You're the first person that made that um, comparison there, but look at that. Two two different movies, two different butt bites. <laughs> Maybe there's some deep rooted issue that uh, psychiatrists have to try to figure out. Well, you know, I mean, if if people looked at like even the title, the way that USA uh, uh, balked at uh, Curse of the Queer Wolf, they would think it's so, you know, it's against the, you know. You know, uh, with the PC police now and and the Me Too movement and that, but you but you mm-hmm. look at that movie and it's so sweet natured and it's and it's not against anything. It's just what it is, and and, well, and that to me is really nice yeah, way of, of of. Well, go ahead. Well, I was going to say a lot of people bring their own agenda to the table. Like there have been people that have been offended by that film on behalf of some gay person they know. But, uh, you know, I mean, at the time it was embraced by the gay community. I mean, they saw that it was not mean natured or anything like that, but, but yeah, there, I mean, there are some people with real tight butts that'll get upset over anything. And, and you know, I got a little, you used to like working (laughs) with good crew on your movies. Yeah. yeah, Oh yeah. Yeah. What if we actually have, had uh, someone that was crew on one of your movies actually call in tonight? Say hello, new person here. Hello, is that me? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, oh, Mark. Mark. Mark, this yeah. is Chris Gilpin. How are you, buddy? Chris Chris Gilpin. You, Chris you, Gilpin. I'm trying to remember what movie. You don't remember me. You worked on, you worked on Death Row I was, show, didn't you? No. I was... Uh, no. Second, I think second uh, AD on um, 
New, nudist colony. Uh, nudist colony. Nudist, nudist colony. colony. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah I remember and uh, <clears throat> I've been writing for for fanzines, and I still am going on forty years now. And uh, yeah, yeah. I used to live in L.A., and I wanted to get a credit in a movie, so I applied, and you said, "Yeah, come on." So uh, I came on, as I remember, I came on as something, a PA, and then I think mm-hmm. a young woman who was second assistant. Second AD on there, she like would come in in the morning and send people off to get coffee for her, coffee and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And when you mm-hmm. found out, you got really pissed off. And uh, uh-huh. I think you let her go, and then you moved me up, and then I was second really? AD there. And yeah, uh, doesn't sound like me at if all. If I remember like, correctly, I'm not a pissed off kind of guy. Yeah, well, if I really remember correctly, yeah, she did, and. Uh, uh-huh. She split or someone split her, and that was it. So uh, I uh, I handled traffic, and uh, um, <laughs> we could we can curse on here, right? Doesn't matter. Oh, absolutely. Huh? Yeah, you can say whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> there you go. All right. And once uh, yeah. once someone asked me to, we were shooting on the street, and someone asked me to go and. Uh, Talked to the neighbors because one guy was mowing his lawn or something, and I went and knocked on the door. I said, "Hi, we're shooting a movie down the block, but we we can hear your uh, lawnmower. Would you mind uh, shutting it off just for for five minutes, and I'll, I'll let you know, uh, you know, when you can start up again." And he said, "Go fuck yourself." No. And I said, uh, "I said yes, sir. I I understand." And I laughed and so, but. Uh, yeah, that's what I did as second AD for a couple of weeks. And you gave me a credit, oh. so thank you very much for that. Well, yeah, and let me apologize for the go fuck yourself. That's a terrible thing for somebody <laughs> to tell a crew member. Sure, took the guy oh, okay. I, uh, <laughs> I had a really big What's laugh it? at that. That really cracked me up. And the other mm. thing I remember from the shoot was of uh, News Colony. It was full of beautiful, young, naked actresses. And two of them we're just playing around with each other and they both had robes on and I happened to be in the middle. I was calling them under the set and they were flashing each other and I was getting whiplash looking for one to the other. And it's like, I don't know if they were just doing it. I think, I don't know if they were were just doing uh, it to. They were, they were wearing zombie. Weren't they wearing zombie boobs or something? Yeah. That's right. Yes, they were. That's right. Yeah. We had great zombies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's I right. The two I remember the great name. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were flashing each other in the robes, and I happened to be standing in the middle of it. And I don't know whether they were doing it just to fuck with me. I think they were, but I didn't care. It was like, <laughs> yeah. it, it was like this that's is a those good gig. You wanted to pay Mark, didn't you? You wanted to give him money like, for It was like, uh, this uh, is a good yes. gig, even if it uh, doesn't pay, man. This is fun. So that was <laughs> That was a day I never forgot. And oh, uh, good. Well, what you doing I'm glad now? Glad to be Mark? part of your memory. Thank you. You got something going on now, Mark? Yeah, we're making another film. This will be my eleventh feature, uh, sure. which is called "The Deceased Won't Desist." And, <laughs> good. Uh, good title. Yeah. So it's kind of All a right, cool, Christie meets South Park kind of film. That sounds so. great. Okay, I just yeah. wanted to say hi, man, and uh, thanks for the for the memories. 
for the memories. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay, before you go, Chris, I want to ask you this real quick. What's your article in the current issue of Wings, or do you have one? I have one in the brand new issue of Wings. I interviewed Georgina Spelvin and uh, the ex porn queen. And, uh, oh, yeah. That, were, her. that was fun. And uh, I also, there's a brand new issue of Deep Red 2, which we're having a signing for next week in Manhattan at uh, Forbidden Planet. And I've got two pieces oh, in there. Oh, Chris, Chris, you need yeah. to uh, uh, message me on that. I'll get to that if I can. I'm in Queens okay. now, so not a problem for oh, me yeah, to get yeah. there. Oh, come but on. Next Thursday is, night at Forbidden Planet. If you like Chris's story tonight, go, well, definitely go because I'm a part of the crew, too. Go to the Amazon and buy Wings Chop. Or go, where can we go online to buy Deep Red? Besides go and pick okay. it up for you personally for close. Right. If if you can, if you're by Manhattan, stop in the uh, Forbidden Planet next Thursday night on the 12th between uh, 6 and 8 p.m. And we're all in there signing. It's it's all the editors and the writers. It's going to be a great fun time. And this is the second issue. The first issue last year went to um, Amazon. I'm sure this one will too, but it's not quite at Amazon yet. But I'm sure it will be. I, I As far as I know, they, they plan to carry it maybe in a couple of weeks if we're lucky. So check out Amazon for Wings Shop number 12 is out now with Georgina Spelvin and tons of other stuff. It's like over 200 pages. It's a great, it's a great book. And Deep Red 2, they, uh, they will get, they, Amazon should get in a couple of weeks also, I would think. So, yeah. or just or go buy Deep Red 1 planet. if you don't have it. Huh? Or just go buy Deep what? Red 1 if you don't have it. Yeah, that too, that too. And uh, everybody, if you're in Manhattan, come by and see us all. Next Thursday night at uh, Forbidden Planet, uh, we're going to have a great time. Okay, message me on that, Chris, all right? And thanks for calling in. Thank you. All right. Take yeah. care, Mark. Take it easy. Take care, y'all. Thank okay. you. you Bye-bye. Yeah, that's another thing that's rare about you compared to most of the people that started in your generation is that You've pretty much had steady work throughout the years, be it as a writer, producer, da-da-da, you know. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I was writing and producing my own stuff, so I'm basically giving myself the work. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm paying myself. So, you know, I would have to supplement it by doing other gigs, or I would work on other people's projects, or there was a time that I used to do, um, I used to videotape marketing research focus groups, you know, so like anything else, you can't really survive as a filmmaker, you know, unless you keep a low overhead and you basically, you know, manage your finances. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've always managed to put together a project and every couple of years, and that's primarily because I have little responsibility. You know, I mean, I'm not married. I don't have any kids. I don't have any support. You know, I don't have to worry about uh, child support or anything like that. So I can literally take a year or two and uh, go out and play, you know, make a movie. Um, not something I would recommend you do at home, but if you have, uh, you know, if you keep your responsibilities down to a minimum, you can manage to do it, you know, and we would shoot weekends or evenings. So it, I would rarely shoot five days, you know, five day weeks or anything like that. Cause again, everybody's volunteering their time 
occasionally we'll work on a film where we have a bit of a budget, like Death Row Game Show had a little bit of a budget, and I did a, a thing called Buford's Beach Bunnies in the early '90s that had a budget, and then we can, you know, we we can pay people and bring them into the fold. But but uh, when I do my own projects, there, you know, there's no budget. We just basically do it uh, as a bunch of friends getting together and you know, putting the project together. Buford Beach Bunnies, that's one of the top ten movies shown the most on Cinemax in the 90s in their high peak of their Skinemax era. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's not one of my favorites, but that was a uh, that was a work for hire. You know, I was hired by a company that liked my comedy, and they made kind of like softcore sex films, and they said, we'd like you to put something together with your comedy but with our sex and we created this movie called Buford's Beach Bunnies, which uh, not on the high list of my resume, but uh, you know it, w- it was a 35 millimeter film, and you know we spent a little under half a million dollars for that film, and you know and yeah. I guess it did well for the the finance years. But and uh, the funny that's part kind is, of... is that, like the movie Bowfinger, it's like, uh, can we get like a Tom Hanks type? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But we can get his brother. <laughs> right. Well, the, the funny thing is, when he auditioned, I I didn't know it was his brother. In fact, he went he went under a different name when he auditioned for me, because he didn't want that to influence my decision. And I remember throughout the entire interview, I kept saying, you know, you should get a job as a lookalike for Tom Hanks. You look so much like Tom Hanks. And uh, you know, he was smiling about it, but I think he was probably fuming inside because I think he wanted to be his own person. But, um, you know, the the whole interview was me saying, you're wasting your time here. You should get a job being his lookalike or his double or something. And then after he left, the casting director said, you know, that really was Tom Hanks' brother. Like, oh, Jesus. So, so I, I gave him the part out of sympathy. But, um, <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was okay. You know, he worked out all right. And there's always Ruth Buzzy. I mean, seriously. <laughs> Uh, Ruth Buzzy, yeah, we put her in My Mom's a Werewolf, as I recall. And, uh, Why did uh, you that make was, uh, that, that one, man? Bad. I almost thought <laughs> I would have that you made that one. I was like, no, Mark, no. No, I, I wrote it. I, I didn't direct that one. That was uh, that was another work for hire. After we had made Death Row Game Show for a company called Crown International Pictures, they wanted another movie. And the head of Crown suggested a movie about a female werewolf, and so I wrote the thing. And and I was going to direct it, but then we ran into some issues because we didn't agree on a lot of things. And I kind of felt I had already given them Death Row Game Show, so I wanted a little more control over this film, which they wouldn't give me. And I walked away from that project. And Although, ironically, they hired a lot of my crew. They took a lot of people that had worked on my films and you know, put them in the movie or gave them things to do on the on the film. So for what it is, you know, it could have been funnier, but but it's okay. You know, it's just another another little project out there. Yeah, they probably spent more money on uh, the cast than they did probably trying to get a good movie. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they did. I mean, that was a SAG film. So I, I would think, like Susan Blakely, she probably got about 50000 for it, and John Saxon John probably Saxon. got around the same. Yeah, and so, yeah, I would think that they probably did. They probably spent most of the money on the actors, and then the rest of it was made guerrilla style like we did Death Row Game Show. But, um, you know, it was one of those things where they paid me to write the script, and then it was going to go to the next level, but 
like I said, we we couldn't agree on a lot of these things. And I think one of the people that were behind the production wasn't a big fan of me. So, you know, we it just kind of fell apart. But uh, anyway, they made their money back, I'm sure. You know, they got it out there and it played all over the place as far as, you know, as far as the cable networks went and all that. So for them, I guess it was worth it. Well, you're one of those guys whose vision is so unique that why would you, it's like, why would you hire Mark Perrow to make a movie if you don't want a Mark Perrow movie? Well, at that time, I had only done three films, and uh, so I hadn't really had any kind of a reputation or even as a cult filmmaker. Polish Vampire, I don't think, had even hit television at that point, because that would have been 88 or 89 when they did My Mom's a Werewolf. So it, the only reason that they hired me in the first place is because they knew I could do a project cheap. You know, cheap. Um, when I did Death Row Game Show for them, Crown was used to spending about a half a million dollars on their films, and I'd come in and say we can make it for like 100000 or 200000 and they that appealed to them. So they gave me the job, and then after that, they said, well, let's do it again. And with My Mom's a Werewolf, but the problem was is that I said, well, wait a minute. We already gave you a movie for a very low budget. Now you want us to do the exact same thing, but you're going to bring in actors that are going to make more than anybody that's working on this film, including the director, the producer, everybody that's involved in it. And I thought that was a bit kind of an insult in a way, but they were thinking, well, come on, we're giving you the opportunity. And I think I, I probably felt I was a little bit more important than I was at the time, but um I kind of got over that, and you know, when the movie came no. out, you know, what's that? Well, I remember Death Row Game Show was a big hit on HBO and the cable channels when it came out. It got good reviews in the genre magazine. It did well on VHS, so any kind of little ego you had, you deserved. Well, they did very well with it, but again, because it didn't cost them that much to make, and they, again, home video was still kind of new. So the the thing about Death Row Game Show, though, is that there were also a lot of terrible reviews, and I, I, I've yet to find a review that came out at that period that didn't compare it to The Running Man. Everybody kept saying, cheap ripoff of The Running Man, and, and it was made around the same time, and of course, you know, well, Crown, I think, tried to it. It takes The Running Man and does it better and funnier. <laughs> well... I'd like to see that review. And that's I what I would put it. You <laughs> did the satire better than the Running Man did. Well, I'll tell you, since it came out again, when it came out recently on Blu-ray, I've been seeing a lot better reviews now because it's almost like the way the world is. You know, it's, we're, we're like one step away from a real show like this. And yeah. um, with with reality TV and all the crazy things that have been happening since then, people are looking at it differently today. But back then, I don't recall it getting the greatest reviews back then. But uh, then again, you know, that was the kind of movie that really didn't make a big splash anywhere. It got a very limited theatrical release. And the only reason they did that was because of the video deal they made. They needed to, I think it needed to play in like 40 theaters across the country to qualify for a better price on the home video market. Well, well, I'll tell you something about that very quickly. Uh, I was in New York in the 80s, and there was a theater called King's Crossing down in Brooklyn. And that was one of the theaters that those movies would play uh, across because I saw so many limited release (laughs) down there. 
mm-hmm. and I'm, I would be almost positive that Death Row Game Show ran there. And mm-hmm. plus, they would have big stickers on the video box that said, direct from showings in New York and Los Angeles, back when that actually meant something, you know. Oh, my God, New York, they're film culture. They make movies out in L.A. This must be a good right. movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it played Los Angeles. I think the closest it got here was San Diego, which is about uh, two or three hours south of Los Angeles. But, in yeah. fact, a bunch of us piled into a car to try and see it. And, uh, you know, when we got to the theater, we found out there were no posters, there was no publicity, and barely an audience. But then again, that didn't matter to Crown Pictures because their job was just to put it in theaters to fulfill an obligation for the home video release. It didn't matter to right. them whether people, you know, went to see it or not. You but, came in during anyway, the last Crown Picture because in the 70s, they were one of the bigger <laughs> drive-in companies that would put out oh, the yeah. drive-in product. Oh yeah, they were around since the fifties, I think. And uh, oh yeah, yeah, they were Late making 50s, they I were think. making movies for years and years. In fact, the uh, the head of Crown just died, I think, a year or so ago, Mark Tenzer. Um, but and and the story that I even got connected with him is when we were showcasing Polish Vampire around. Uh, they had gotten a copy of it and thought it was a very funny film, but they you know they didn't have the rights to it and they wanted to find. It. Uh, they wanted to make a movie similar to that, so they contacted me about doing something for them. At the time, I was shooting Queer Wolf, and they said, well, maybe we'll put the money into Queer Wolf, but we want to change the title, and we want to change this, and we want to change that. And I said, well, uh, if you guys are serious, we'll talk, but right now we're just going to keep making the movie. And we made Queer Wolf. Then they came to us and said, you got any other ideas for movies? And that's when we presented Death Row Game Show to them, and we were doing post-production on Queer Wolf. Um, they gave us the money to do Death Row Game Show, and we just jumped off Queer Wolf, did Death Row Game Show, and then went back and finished Queer Wolf because we had the, the, all the posts to do on that. But it was a, a crazy ride at the time because they were behind us, and yet they weren't. You know, we'd never shot a 35-millimeter film before. They didn't know if we could follow through. They were a little reluctant, and uh, there were a couple people there that were on our side, and there were a couple people there saying, I don't know, these are, these are kids, you know, do you think you can trust them? So that was kind of a weird situation for us, but we got it out, and so-so. Well, that was really about the time they had their really two biggest box office hits, and that would be uh, Tomboy and My Tutor. Well, My uh, Tutor, yeah, My Chauffeur, my, my, and Tomboy. My Chauffeur, right. Yeah, they. I mean, they would make these movies for the drive-in market, you know, double bill on a drive-in theater uh, or or some southern states or whatever. I mean, they they had their market pretty much. Oh yeah, point. definitely down south. Right. So. I was Tennessee, and I know it's brown Yeah. Yeah, they made their movies basically by the pound. You know, it didn't really matter how good or bad they were. It was just, you know, make sure it's at least eight reels long, and you got to tit every once in a while in there. You said that you were Kind of disappointed on how Nudist Colony of the Dead How shocked were you once you found out that It became a really big Cult movie and was Playing at midnight in a lot of Theaters Uh, I'm I'm constantly surprised I mean and amused I mean I'm always Happy when somebody enjoys anything We put out but but yeah Nudist Colony of the Dead is sort of like Uh 
like giving birth to a retarded kid that can play the piano really well. But uh, <laughs> you look at him and say, well, you know, the kid's he's still a retard, but okay, he can play the piano. I mean, people will look at Nudist Colony of the Dead, and they'll find something that endears it to them, which is maybe the songs or the craziness or whatever. But I look yeah, at it. Yeah, you had a great score that little... for that. Who did the score for it? The songs. Uh, it was between Greg Gross. His name is Greg Gross and Joyce Mordeaux and myself. We uh, between the three of us, we wrote the music and the lyrics. And in fact, we did it as a stage play. You may not be aware. Um, in 1995. We we put it on live in Hollywood as a stage show. We added four additional songs and made it more of a romance story as well. And that ran for about four months in Hollywood because I thought, well, you know, this this lends itself to a stage show. And I always thought what would be cool is if this followed the path of, say, Little Shop of Horrors, which started out as a cheap little nothing movie, then it became a stage play, then it became a big movie musical. And uh, I would love that to have happened with Nudist Colony of the Dead. I always thought we could, if we could get Tim Burton's attention, you know, this would be a great uh, vehicle for him. But if we were to remake it, I wouldn't want to do it on a low budget because we've done that. You know, I would say let's bring in some real dancers and some really good singers and some really good makeup and, you know, and make it like a bigger project. And that still could happen, you know. I mean, uh, you, you know what? Uh, I, 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 would, uh, I would pitch it to Joe Dante. Joe Johnson, if you know him, give him a call. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Did you uh, record any of the performances of uh, Nudist Colony of the Dead? I'm sorry, what? Did you record any of the state performances of Nudist Colony of the Dead? Uh, Actually, I did. I I, I think we did uh, record some of the shows. Uh, there might be some stuff on YouTube. I think there might be some uh, highlights, if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay, but yeah, we have, companies, if you decide to do a full edition of Nudist Colony of the Dead, give him the money to make the, yeah. his live recordings good and then have both of them on there. No, really. Well, we did follow the script pretty closely. We, you know, we improved a few things. Like I said, we we created more of a love story between two of the kids from the camp, and we added some other songs. We have a geek song where the two geeks sing "It's Tough Being a Geek," which was another sweet song that we added. We had the the uh, the preacher singing a song, "Why Can't Everybody Be Like Me?" That was another song. In fact, if you have the remastered version of the DVD of Nudist Colony of the Dead, we do have, I think, the additional songs on there. Yes, um, you do. Under the, I, yeah, in the sub, supplemental right. section. So, uh, so yeah, so, you know, we, we basically try to, you know, get the information out there, and if people are interested in it, they can find whatever they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about some of your later films, because we haven't talked – about that, and and I'm going to just say two words, and you'll know what I'm talking about. I want to hear about the submissive Jesus. <laughs> okay, well, I divide my filmmaking into two parts, uh, pre-1998 and post-1998. Everything pre-1998 was either Super 8 or low budget. Well, they're all low budget, but I mean it was you know done without the greatest amount of uh, technology, 
And then from 1998 on, we had more control over the technology. There's home video, you know, digital editing, that sort of thing. So we did a movie called uh, The God Complex in 2009, and it was a parody of the Bible, and it basically skewers all of the crazy stories in the Bible, and we make them a little crazier. And one of the items that we showcased in the movie is a, a toy, which is a submissive Jesus prayer answering talking head. And in the God Complex movie, God and Jesus, uh, they get a job working in a toy factory. You don't even ask how that happens, but they end up uh, <laughs> disguising themselves and working there. And some entrepreneur brings out this Jesus head and says, all you have to do is you, you pray to it, you twist the crown of thorns, and he'll answer your prayers. And I thought, wouldn't this be a great idea to market the toy with the movie? You know, I mean uh, – you know, the, the Avengers has McDonald's, and they market with their Happy Meals, right? So I figured, well, we'll make a Jesus head. And uh, we made about 2,500 of them. We sold about 830 of them, so I still have a huge stack left. But um, we, we – I'll buy it, one. You know, either, <laughs> uh, well, go to the, sub, the com and you can buy one. They're, uh, in fact, uh, maybe we'll autograph it for you, but – Anyway, so we also we have specials like on my website we have the blasphemy special where you get a Jesus head and the movie The God Complex at a special price, and um, but yeah that was the first time I ventured into the toy arena, and to be honest with you I probably spent more on that than all my movies combined because that was actually a tangible project that uh, you know I had to go through the whole process of creating the toy and and making the boxes and just doing the whole nine yards. It was an experience. Uh, I'd probably never do it again, but it was kind of a fun thing to tie in with our movie. And uh, like I said, we're still selling them today. So got a few left over. <laughs> and it does answer your prayers. It, uh, you twist the crown of thorns because you're, you're, you're basically forcing him to, you know, out of pain. And then he will respond with a hundred different smart-ass remarks. It's sort of like, a, you know, the religious version <laughs> I love of, it. of the magic eight ball. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, like, there know, was a there was a toy. I, I think they were called pods. And I remember I was looking something for my niece, and and I went into it, and it's this rock, and and with a uh-huh. face on it, and I just pushed a button. And I'm like, what are you looking at, you jerk? And I said, <laughs> I have to have him, <laughs> and uh-huh. I did. I bought him. So yeah, I mean, well, it has I- that sort of feel. <laughs> Yeah, we've, uh, I mean, everybody that has their submissive Jesus is very happy with it. I haven't had any complaints yet because it it lasts for a long time. You can keep twisting it, and we've got it rigged so that the first hundred things he says, you'll never hear it repeated. And then after he says all hundred things, then it's random. But, um, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. And the God Complex, which if you're if you're religious, you probably hate the film. But if you're not, it's pretty pretty out there. That's one of my it's one of my favorites. I think of all the films we've done. I've yet to see it, and 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 to be honest, I am a church organist and, and musician, but I'm I, I'm all for that type of stuff. I I don't well, have yeah, a problem with with your, skewering your religion level of every time. Yeah. Because in this movie, I mean, our God, he's 350 pounds, bald, and he wears a bowling shirt. So that basically sums up. I like it already. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and and we do follow a lot of the stories of the Bible. You know, there's Adam and Eve. There's uh, Abraham and Isaac. There's Moses. There's, uh, 
uh, Noah's Ark. There's the story of Job. There's Jesus and Mary. I mean, we we break it up into chapters. But just to give you a quick example, we have a scene with a burning bush. And the burning bush is between Noah's wife's, or I'm sorry, between Moses' wife's legs, if you can imagine this. So you're seeing a big flame coming from her crotch. And God's face appears in there. So. Okay, that, that's pyro humor right there. Yes. We're basically saying you know, this is not your father's greatest story ever told. And if you're listening to this and are offended by it, Please protest yeah. your anger about this episode and the episode so people can get pissed off on it on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Yes, please, <laughs> post how horrible we are and tell people to listen to it so we they can protest us and post how horrible we are. Because that means more hits go. for us. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. But um, anyway, so yeah, so that's that's basically. I mean, that was the one movie that I kind of wanted to do for years because a lot of my movies, we kind of hint at some of the religious hypocrisy and some of the jokes that I mean, slow hanging fruit, so it's easy to do. But but this was the one movie where we literally take the stories out of the Bible and put our own slant on it. And um, you know, again, if if you've got a good threshold for comedy and you understand that it's never intended to be mean. Like any of my other films, it's just intended to make its targeted audience laugh. And um, I think on that level, hopefully it succeeds. But in fact, I'll save you some money. You can find it on Tubi. Are you familiar with Tubi television? Yeah. Mm -hmm. T-U-B-I. Yeah, the God Complex is uh, streaming on that channel. So, you know, you don't have to buy a DVD now. You can just go stream it on Tubi TV. No, no, no. You, Sorry, they they need to go to Paramount.com and buy all the DVDs and the Blu-rays from you. Yeah, well, you can do they that need too. to buy it from you. <laughs> you can do streaming that too, is but good, but then one day Mark could just take it off uh, streaming and how you going to watch it then? But if you have the DVD, if Mark decides not to sell the DVDs anymore, you still got your copy. <laughs> well, that's a good way to put it. That's... Uh, yeah, I'm one of the rare filmmakers you're going to find that I'm not about the money. I mean, I would rather somebody goes out and if they want to stream a movie, they want to watch it, they want to pirate it, whatever they do. I mean, if they're, if they're enjoying it, uh, that was the whole reason that I made it. I mean, these films, they don't cost a lot to make, so I don't need a big return. And if people are getting a kick out of it and there's fans out there or whatever, that's, that's rewarding enough. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a rarity in Hollywood, I suppose. And throughout the seven years, Mark, the way that he just proves up and was like, we're talk- we we could be talking about any kind of comedies. And all of a sudden, <laughs> out of nowhere, Carl brings up, hey, what about Rick Tuma? I'm like, Carl, you've only mentioned it 20 times. So, it's not 21. <laughs> <laughs> okay. i I got to say this. I fucking love that movie. It is so... Wonderfully un PC and yet so sweet natured and just so friggin' hysterical. And Dr. I love Rick the Tumor. lead in it too. He's so funny. Rick Tumor, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bill Devlin, he's great. I met him from that film. That was the first time we'd worked together and he's been in I think four of my films total now. And uh he's always great, you know. He's he's a funny guy, he's a comedian by nature. 
And, um, you know, I mean, I, I really can't say many bad things about anybody I worked with. I mean, I've got some of the same actors that I've worked with since the early days of, you know, Polish Vampire, John McCafferty, who uh, was in, you know, the Star of Death Row game show. He's been in practically every movie I've ever made. I think he maybe missed one or two. And uh, he's in the current one that I'm doing now. So, you know, we, we go back a long way. I guess he's he's sort of like the Bela Lugosi to my Ed Wood, you know. He's the guy that I just keep <laughs> over and over again. <clears throat> you know, when, when he dies, I'll have to just put a cape over somebody's man or face and, you know, recreate him. But he's, um, yeah, all my actors are, I mean, what can I say? You know, they work for nothing and they're happy to be there. As am I. Well, it's you don't family. know how nice you know, Mark like you on sorry, IMDb. What? Go ahead, Carl. Well, I, I just said, you know, it's all family. You know, and, and, and you 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 give that vibe and people wanna go back and work with you because they loved having the time with you. That's uh, that's that's, that's what you do. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't think anybody has walked away pissed off because I, even when we don't have a budget, you know, I don't make false promises. I don't tell actors that, uh, you know, you're going to make millions off of this and you may get lucky. Somebody might see this or whatever. I mean, when we did uh, a film I did a few years ago, Rage of Innocence, which was my first thriller, um, while we were shooting it, the lead actress ended up getting a role in The Hunger Games. And I thought, well, that's the end of her. But yet she came back to finish the movie you know she went off to do the hunger games and then she came back and did our little dog and pony show and um you know it was a testament to her character but also the fact that people enjoy what we do we don't pressure anybody we work very short hours i don't work you know 20 hour days or anything like that and um we we take it we give it a more of a like a party atmosphere you know we're just going out and we're not doing brain surgery here we're just going out to have some fun and hopefully make a project that everybody's going to enjoy and uh, go from there. So tell us a little bit about Rage of uh, Innocence, because it is your first non-comedy film. Now, I've not seen it, so, so you know, where can we see it? Wow. And, well, that's, that's sort of good uh, stuff. I, that's up on Tubi as well. Um, I At the time, I was sort of dry for comedy. I think I kind of shot my wad, and I ran out of comedic ideas. And I had this script kind of lurking about that I had kind of written early on, but didn't really flush it out. And uh, I, I went ahead and started pushing, putting the script together, finishing it up. And it was kind of a, I guess, a cautionary tale about how easy it is for a young girl to accuse a guy of doing something that he's totally innocent of, and yet everybody's going to believe her. So... McCafferty is the lead, again, in one of his first dramatic roles, and he plays this poor guy that gets um, becomes the victim of this 15-year-old sociopath that doesn't want him dating her single mom. So she goes to extremes to keep him away, and in the beginning, he's defiant, saying, I'm not going to let a 15-year-old girl tell me what to do, but then later, she it escalates, and she starts accusing him of, of raping her, and she has evidence to back it up, and she does everything she can to uh to ruin his life and it happens throughout the film so when we were doing the film though the lead actress her name is steph dawson um she was great when she when she auditioned i thought either this is a great actress or she's crazy i wasn't sure which one but um when we started shooting with her i just thought she's amazing i mean she's she's a very you know very good gives a good dramatic performance 
and which is probably why she got the Hunger Games films after she did ours, or while she was working on ours. But anyway, getting back to your point, is that I thought, well, you know, I've made nothing but comedies since the 80s, 70s, and I thought, let's give this a shot. And the, the one thing I find harder about it is, is that you really have to get good actors. When you're doing a comedy, you can kind of, the audience will forgive you if your characters are a little hammy or crazy or weird or whatever. But if you're going to try and do a straight thriller, it, it thrives on the performers. And if they don't deliver, then nobody's going to buy it. And, you know, so we, we got lucky with her. And, of course, McCaffrey is always good in anything he does. And um, so anyway, so there was that. But, yeah, if you want to see it, just go to 2 TV, type in Rage of Innocence. And uh, if you can sit through a couple commercials, uh, you know, you can check it out. Okay, How cool. much of your work is up on Tubi? Uh, they've got five of my movies up there. And they've got, uh, let me see, they got Nudist Colony of the Dead, uh, Rage of Innocence, Rectuma, Colorblinded, and uh, God Complex. So you can see half my library up on Tubi. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And, Mark, I want to say this in- what I was going to say earlier, it's nice to go on INDB and see a director that you like their stuff and find out that there's a whole lot of films that you haven't seen yet. Uh-huh. That's like being well, a kid and going, in the Christmas, going into Christmas and finding out you still got more presents to open than you thought you did. All right. Well, there's there's one other film that we haven't talked about, which I made two years ago called Celluloid Soul which uh, we're still we're trying to get that one out there. That one right now is being represented by a company called Green Apple Entertainment, and hopefully they'll get it on the streaming platforms. But that's, uh, that's kind of a fantasy. It's, it's a kind of a romantic fantasy with comedy. And uh, briefly, that's about a guy that sees a movie from 1939, and he falls in love with the actress from that film, finds out that she's still alive today, and then when he finally meets her, she looks exactly like she did in the film. Uh, in other words, she's also in black and white, and she's got little scratches going through her vertically, and uh, he thinks he's crazy. All of his friends think he's crazy because nobody else sees her but him. But uh, he then forms a relationship with this celluloid soul. So um, that's uh, that's another one that's a little different. Is, but it is still that has your Woody Allen Zelig film, maybe? <laughs> Um, I would say if you're gonna, yeah, if you're gonna compare it to Woody Allen, it's probably closer to Purple Rose of Cairo. You remember that one? Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's oh, that's, probably that's closer a great to idea, it. Mark. I, that's a great friggin' idea. Yeah, you can. Um, the movie I don't think you can find easily online, but you can definitely check out the trailer. Just uh, you know, go to either my website or to YouTube and just type in Celluloid Soul. You'll see the trailer to it. That's nice. And uh, and if you go to my website, which is puremount.com, there are links to everything there. You know, there's links to every film I've ever done, or at least trailers to them, and, and some behind the scenes things. And you know, it pretty much has everything any pure white would be interested in finding, I would imagine. You know, I, I, I'm an admin on one of the largest uh, sites on um, Facebook, uh, movie sites, and, and I have certainly directed a number of people towards your, your website. Uh, oh, cool. And, uh, because it, it, you do come up uh, on incredibly strange films quite a bit. So 
Hopefully we get a lot of listeners from that group. I have to check out your Facebook page or send me a link. Send me a friend request. I will. I I just friended you a couple days ago, so I'll be sure to give you info and all that, Mark. No problem at all. Vice versa. Let us know what you're doing. Happy to do it. And it's funny that uh, back then, Curse of the Quirrell, like you said, it was embraced by the gay community. But nowadays, you would see a lot of non-gays just be horrified just by the title, not even giving it a chance. Really? Well, you know, fuck them. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Amen. I mean, look, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if, if you're going to tell a joke, and let's say you're going to tell a Polish joke or whatever, you know, you're going to look over both shoulders and make sure that there's no Polish people that are going to be offended by your joke. I mean, when I did Polish Vampire, Every once in a while, somebody would say, you know, I'm Polish. I said, so you want me to talk slower? What? But, uh, <laughs> most, you know, um, it's, it's like anything else. If you got to look at the context, if somebody does something and their intent is to manipulate or to hurt or to offend, well, that's one thing. But anybody that's familiar with any of my work knows that there's no agenda. It's just me telling jokes, you know, whether it's a Polish joke or a queer wolf joke or a joke about uh, big butts or little butts or whatever. And it it's just, you know, I, I got to laugh when people do get offended over things. And, like, people are offended by Disney because they had some Arabs in a movie sing about cutting off your hands or something like that. And, oh, yeah, they cut a line out song in Aladdin. Oh, and guess what now, yeah. Carl and there? They're complaining about uh, Anna Paquin's role in The Irishman. Because she didn't have right. enough lines. They had someone yeah. who was so obsessed about that that they counted the amount of lines that she had in the damn script. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. There's always going to be somebody that's going to take issue with something. And, you know, there, there's films out there that I could look at and say, uh, you know, I wouldn't have made that movie or I'm not a fan of that filmmaker or whatever. But it's their sandbox. You know, let them make the movie they want to see and you have the option to to watch it or not. And if there's certain things like if you don't get it, like I know some people that love Quentin Tarantino and I know some people that can't stand them. And I'll give each one of his movies a shot. You know, I like some of his films. Other ones are okay or whatever. But, uh, you know, it, it's like it's his movie. And, and uh, people were complaining about the Bruce Lee segment in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, you know, it's like, well, Bruce Lee wouldn't have gotten beaten up by that. Well, wait a minute. Quentin Tarantino created a fictional character who was Brad Pitt's character, and his fictional character can you know beat up Bruce Lee or at least fight with Bruce Lee. And I think Tarantino said, you might as well ask me who would win in a fight between Bruce Lee and Dracula. It doesn't matter. This character that he made up could beat up Bruce Lee. Right? So well, Don't forget some, one of uh, Bruce Lee's most famous lines, which is always cut short, and that is, he said, on any day, at any second, on any hour, I can beat up any man on this earth. But also, mm-hmm. on any day, on any second, on any hour, anyone can beat me up as well. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but see, the point of the argument is is that if you're making, you know, Tarantino isn't making a documentary here. If you saw the movie, you know what I mean, and especially yeah, the ending. Absolutely. So, 
So, you know, it's like he's a filmmaker. He can make his own story. I mean, in, in Glorious Bastards, Hitler didn't die in a movie theater by getting shotgunned to death or blown up. So it's like, all right, this is the game we're playing. We're filmmakers. We're storytellers. And if somebody has an issue with the story you're telling, they have the right to leave. And they have the right to complain about it, too, I suppose. I mean, you know, everybody's going to say whatever they want to say about a film. And it's, it's a very lofty position to be in because if you've never made a film, um, you know, it's easy to sit back and criticize. But uh, if, you've, if you've ever gone through the process of making a film, you know that it's like giving birth. I mean, you're going through the whole process of having a baby. And when the baby comes out, you want people to like it. But few people are going to come up to you and say, you know, that baby looks like a tree frog. I've never seen such, such an ugly little thing. They're not going to do that because they, you know, they have a little, uh, a little respect for, for parents, but they'll very easily go up to a filmmaker and say, Oh my God, that was a piece of crap. Why did you do that? You know? And, and unless the filmmaker has a thick skin, it could hurt. You know, I think in the earlier oh, days, some of these reviews, but you got to understand that everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's going to look at a film one way or the other, and they always bring whatever they bring to the table. So I take that all with a large grain of salt nowadays. When we, you know, when we screen a film, or we do a Q and A or whatever, and if somebody has any kind of um, issue, I just try to kind of humor them and hear their point, but then say, "I'm I'm glad for your opinion, but you know." Go fuck yourself. It's over. You know, the movie's made. It's not going to change. You know, you know we... one of the things that I always look at in, in any filmmaking, but particularly low-budget filmmaking, is their passion involved. And mm-hmm. and, and does well, the person yeah. really want to, to make be. that movie because no matter what? Because against all and the if odds, that you're passion, against actors, and, agendas, schedules, yeah. locations that yeah. may or may not be available. Uh, right. But, you know, the whole thing is if there's that passion, it shows. And that's what makes a movie a real movie in my, my, my point of view. You know, I mean, as I love Blood Freak, as misguided as that film is, there was passion behind it. And there's passion in all these low budget. I mean, I grew up uh, uh, working in a uh, uh, drive-in. So I saw, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis and... and, and um, all these the Barry Mayon stuff and that sort of stuff. And just, I love that stuff. And, and you're part of that, uh, that lineage. And I, and, and that's one of the reasons I always uh, 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 gravitated toward, toward your, your films and also your sense of humor, which just works for me. So, you know, if anyone doesn't know, if anyone else doesn't like it or are offended, you're right. Fuck them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought that, yeah, I'm a reviewer too, but you, I have the right to say anything I want to say. But I don't have the right to have my word taken as the word of God. True. Are you still there, Mark? Oh, he just called back in. Oh, okay. So... Okay, hey, Are you there? what happened? Did the cat hang up on you? I know how they can get. I got hung up on for a second, but I called back. So yeah. There here? you go. But what you missed, I just said I have the right as a reviewer to say anything I want to do with criticism, but I don't have the right to have anything I say taken as the word of God. Well, right. 
And, I mean, when you make a film and somebody gets so upset by it that they actually call you names or threaten you or whatever, I mean, I've had a few people like that in my career. And it's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a terrorist. I'm a filmmaker. You know, now I made a bunch of short videos for YouTube with my Jesus head, but I put a turban on it and I called him Mohammed. And, uh, <laughs> and then I changed his name to oh. Mohammed Happy. You know, I, I, and there's a whole series of videos online called Mohammed Speaks. And it's the Jesus head with my voice talking about different things. And the only reason I did that was because of the whole Mohammed controversy that came out a few years ago. And I thought, if people are going to tell you you can't do something, then screw it. I'm going to do it, you know, because I, I don't stand for a lot, but I do stand for freedom of speech. So, yeah, um, I, yeah I, I mean, I've done a series of those, and I've gotten, you know, some bite back on it. But, like, if you got a problem with it, then you just don't have to click on it. Go away. Yeah, well, you know who Mustafa Akkad is, don't you, the guy who did the Halloween film? Right. Well, in yeah. the 70s, he did a film on Muhammad himself and the history of <laughs> Islam. Uh-huh. And okay. he got death threats from the radical Islamic community for, oh, sure. making, for showing Muhammad on film. Yeah. I and know. you know what I mean, he said radical, to him? Uh, he yeah. said, there's, there's, you motherfuckers. I am, and he gave out his address. You want to fucking kill me? Come here. I will fight you <laughs> all to the fucking death. That's what I will do. Uh, that's funny. Well, I mean, when when artists are getting threatened for cartoons or for movies or whatever, that just shows you how screwed up some people can get, you know, because, again, it's not like you're out bombing abortion clinics or something. You know, I'm not a political person, so, um, you know, so I can express myself in film. And, again, some people get it, some people don't. You're not going to please everybody. So you just have to make a movie that's going to please you and your friends or people that you care yeah. about. Yeah. And if they don't please you, there's going to be four more people over on the left that's going to please. Or four more people well, on the sure. right that's going to please. Well, I mean, just basically talking to you guys, I mean, you're my target. You're the audience that appreciates yeah. what we do. and. You're the kind of people that we make the movies for. There's a girl that uh, I, I met on Facebook, and she talks about a lot of my films, and she's always posting pictures of films that I've done. And she goes through depression every once in a while, and she'll post whatever is going wrong in her life. She'll say, but I can watch a Mark Pirro film, and that'll cheer me up. And I uh, responded to one of those, and I said, you know, you're the person I make these movies for. If it cheers you up or pulls you out of a slump or gives you something to think about or whatever – then mission accomplished, you know, that's my goal. I want people to enjoy the work that we put out and the ones that don't, again, they don't belong in this little circle, you know, and it's a, it's not a huge circle, I would imagine, but it's enough, you know, there's people out there that, uh, I don't know how, like you said, you've, you've heard of my films from way back when, but you didn't know that I still make movies. So some people, they find one or two of these films and then they go on a journey and find out, oh, there's a lot more. You know, so well, that's, you know that, that's, that's one of the things I, I say, you know, to people. If you if you like one movie, who are the actors? Who's the director? Do you know their mm -hmm. work? Go back and check this out. Go back and check that. Right. I do that, you know, with with films, with music, I, uh, and, and things like that. And that's that's mm -hmm. what you should do. Right. Absolutely. 
Yeah, or and I also say, if you find, if you like, you like a certain filmmaker and you think he's God, we'll look for the people. We'll look up the interviews with him. Find out who he thinks is God. Look up your right. God's gods, and you might, and you will find other great stuff. Mhm. Well, that's true because I mean, most filmmaking, in a way, is just creative stealing. Because a lot of filmmakers will emulate other filmmakers, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's filmmakers that influence me. There's filmmakers that I might influence. Who did I mean, influence you, know, you for your fans out there? Give them some other things to look for. I'm sorry, I didn't get the beginning of that. What'd you say? Who influ- uh, which influ- filmmakers are your favorites and influenced you? Um, well, when I was younger, I would say filmmakers like Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, uh, John Landis. I, I loved his earlier films from Animal House, American Werewolf, Blues, Blues Brothers. Um, he was an early influence on me. In the later years, I'm probably influenced uh, by filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino. I uh, Not so much my filmmaking style, but my uh, just the way I'll shoot certain scenes like Tarantino tends to give you unnecessary close-ups of certain things you know like you'll see a shot of a, a beer mug or something that has nothing to do with what else is going on in the scene so yeah. I might do that more <laughs> excuse me um, but yeah, I would say that's probably um, in recent years that's probably the biggest influence on me um, there aren't too many I mean, you know, I, I, I like the Ed Wood story. I like his whole passion. Um, you know, obviously it wasn't a very successful story when he was alive. But over the years, of course, he, everybody knows his name now. And yeah. I even used, Con, you know, Conrad Brooks, who was in some Ed Wood films, was in a handful oh, I of love my movies. Yeah. We, we love Conrad. I had a chance to meet Conrad down at Monster Bash. And we had mm-hmm. a good half hour of just talking and great guy. Right. Yeah. So I mean and, and the I best met thing him. about it was the day after that Carl was walking mm-hmm. out and Connor was like, Hey girl, how you doing man? Come over for a tiny bit. Right. Yeah. Well I was I was shooting. He knew you by your first name after just meeting you once. You know, just yeah. all around nice guy. Right. Yeah, I bumped into him when we were doing Polish Vampire. We were we went to an Edwood Film Festival, and he was sitting in the back with a couple of the other actors. And that's when I said, "You want to be in another movie?" And he goes, "Well, I haven't been in a movie since the '60s." And we put him in Polish Vampire briefly as a bartender, and then used him in Queer Wolf and Death Row Game Show, and uh, kind of revived his career. And after that, you know, everybody started discovering him, and they'd put him in all kinds of projects. But. Uh, but that was sort of like a, you know, to me, it was a tie-in to the Ed Wood era. And, you know, as, as bad a filmmaker as Ed Wood was, you can definitely see the passion in his work. You know, he enjoyed what he was doing. Uh, you know, unfortunately, he didn't do it well, but that's almost beside the point, you know. Well, he did a couple well. I mean, Glenn or Glenda is a ser- great, serious film on what it's like to be a... It has his goofy bits, but... It's a pretty good serious film on what it's like to be a transvestite and how scary it was to come out. Right. Yeah. But I mean, and the, have you ever the, seen the, the movie is the pornographer? The pornographer? No. Yeah. Oh, there, it's like half of the movie is basically him getting girls and taking nudie pictures of it. 
Uh-huh. And then they force him to dress up as a woman. And then a bunch of guys come in, they start being an orgy, and then Edward vanishes to the side of the porch in 20 minutes of that film. After that, you just get Edward talking about himself, and it's just jaw-droppingly amazing. You've seen it, haven't you, Carl? No, I have not seen that, actually. You've told me about it, though. Yeah, he basically talks for 20 familiar. minutes what it's like to be dragged, what was it like to serve in World War Two. What's it like to make these crap? You know, he's like, yeah, I have to make these crappy movies to survive. It ain't art, but it pays the bills. Right. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Mark, it's 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 a pleasure to have you on. um, And and that. So so if there's any movie that you would recommend, or or that's your favorite of, of what you've done. And what you would recommend to people? Well, uh, I've said this so many times before that all of my films are like my children. <laughs> you know, it's like, who's your favorite child? I can say uh, Polish Vampire is my first child, so I have a sort of special place in my heart for that. Um, you know, Queer Wolf was my edgy child, and I you know, I think he was kind of my smart-ass kid, and he had moments too, and then uh, probably the God complex is probably my most intellectual child because it's kind of a smart comedy. Um, Rage of Innocence is the troublemaker child, but uh, still fun to watch. And uh, try and narrow it down. Um, if you're going to see one movie of mine, I would probably say go for Rectuma. I think that's probably the funniest film I think I've ever made or ever will make. I think that. You know, we premiered that out here back in 2003, and we recorded the audience reactions. And I I kid you not that you can listen to the audio tape, and 45 seconds does not go by without a laugh. I mean, there literally is a laugh within every 45 seconds of that film. And I I look back at the premiere of that as one of the greatest nights of my life. In fact, the premiere or clips from it is on YouTube. You can go type in Rectuma Premiere, and you'll see some of the the behind-the-scenes of the premiere but uh, it was such a a well fun film to create and and everything worked in my opinion on it <laughs> so if you want absolute bizarre you know balls to the wall comedy i would say go for rectuma anything else you know the other films i'm i'm pleased with them all cuz they're my kids you know but uh uh Buford's beach bunnies that's the little retarded kid in the corner that i'd avoid i'm not a big fan of that one but, <laughs> But all the other ones, you know, you can uh, just you know, go to my website. You can check out any of the clips from any of the movies and uh, pick your favorite and enjoy it. Or you can have a marathon, you know, get a bunch of them and uh, invite your friends over and get drunk and watch them all. So, <laughs> can you put that as an extra I can think of worse things to do. That sounds like a great life to me. I'm sorry, what? I didn't hear that. Go ahead, Carl. What did you say? I, I I just said that sounds like a great idea to me. Let's go, let's let's go get some Mark Piro films and have a party and get drunk or get high, one of the two. There you or go. Yeah, making a marathon. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, if you got yeah, someone I mean, that you know, says they like weird films for Christmas, buy a Mark Piro films. There you go for the person that has nothing or everything or wants nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thank you for uh, being on uh, 
Mark, it was definitely a pleasure, and finally glad I was able to track you down and get you on the show. I'm very glad to be here. Where are you guys located, by the way? Well, uh, Stephen has in NYC for now, and I'm in Tana, say. So. I see. Yeah, okay. and, and I'm I'm living in New York City right now. Gotcha. Okay. Well, um, yeah, this was this was great. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, listen, I, you've been you've been one of the people that we've starred that we've said we need to get him on the show. We are just so pleased that that you, you know, that you agreed to be on, and, and love to have you back anytime. So next time you've got something coming out with your new film, uh, uh, please let us know. And before you go, just give everyone the information again about Paramount and what you're shooting and what you're doing and all that sort of good stuff. Oh, okay. Well, Piro Mount, of course, uh, you can go to my website, which is com, and we pretty much update it every couple of weeks just to let everybody know what's happening. Right now, we're doing a movie. It's called The uh, Deceased Won't Desist. It's basically about a guy who's dead, but he pre-recorded a bunch of videos before he died, talking to everybody that pissed him off in his life, and they all come together at a cabin, and these videos keep uh, showing up and one person after another dies and then another video shows up with this guy talking about the person that just died. So people are wondering, is he really dead? How is he doing this? How did he know what was going to happen and, and all that? So that we're, we just started that a few weeks ago. It's going to be a long haul. We'll probably be shooting it through 2020 and hopefully it'll be out either by the end of 2020 or 2021. But uh, if you go to Paramount.com, you can always see the updates. Um, I have a Facebook page. You can check that out there. You can go to the SubmissiveJesus.com and get a Submissive Jesus head, TheSubmissiveJesus.com. Um, and uh, what else? That's basically, that's basically my Tubi. world at the moment. And Tubi, of course. Yeah, if you go to Tubi, uh, T-U-B-I television, you can find it on the Internet. You can find it on a smart TV. You can find it on your phone. It doesn't cost anything to join. You don't have to sign up or anything. You just click on it and you see the movie. But they, uh, you know, they have commercial interruptions. I don't think they have that many, and I don't think they're that long. But there's like two or three commercial interruptions. But you can watch uh, five of my films there. And uh, I think some of them are up on Amazon Prime, too. I know there's a few of them there, too. It's hard to keep track of these things. You know, when these kids, when they leave the nest, you don't know where they are. But, um, but, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of ways to find our stuff. And I usually say just start at the website because my website usually keeps everybody up to date as to, you know, where things are, what, what's going on. So, uh, yeah, that's the place to start, I would say. All right. All right. And okay. All right. Thank you very much, Mark, for being on. Uh, Stephen, take it away. Okay, well, no, I'm giving it to you. What do you have that's going down on the DL this weekend? Uh, actually, uh, nothing this weekend as as I'm a little bit on the busy side with everything going on. Uh, so we don't have anything on DLN uh, uh, on Friday. I know that Doc has a show coming up on Sunday, but I'm not sure what it is. I've just been running around like crazy the last couple of days. Yeah, so. Carl's doing this weird thing, Mark, that he rarely gets to do nowadays. What is it, Carl? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm... Make money. 
Yeah, that's true. I'm actually making money. It's a good thing. Good for you. And this Sunday, yeah. we at, here on Steve's Video Store, we have the great Mike House, who, to quote Tracy, or one of our fans, is to spaghetti westerns what Bose is to speakers, and he truly is. We and him are going to be watching and doing a live watch of Eight Diagram Pole Slider on the 8th. So it's Ace on the 8th. And on Friday the 13th, it's going to be me and Fred Gorey watching Friday the 13th Part 3 for Friday the 13th. And again, thank you all for listening. Oh, and our Christmas music mix is one part me and one part Carl. More me than Carl. Carl, don't take blame for some of the songs. Go on Spotify and look up. Cultside Radio's Christmas Mix, and you will get over 51-plus songs of Christmas weirdness. There you go. Sounds cool. And, all right. And awesome. thank you again, Mark, for being on the show, and thank you for all your films you've made throughout the years. Absolutely. You, you have made my life so much better just by laughing my friggin' ass off. I appreciate that, right. Mark. Hey, and that's a lesson most filmmakers need to learn. If you can make one person smile and make their lives better, then you've really accomplished your work. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like uh, you've helped me achieve that accomplishment. So thank you for appreciating them. <laughs> and well, uh, thanks for having me on board. That is definitely the one. Oh, I'm the one. I don't have it up, but it just makes me want to play that one by the Kinks, Rock and Roll Fantasy, doesn't it, Carl? Yep. All right. All right, folks. Well, listen, have a good night. Thanks for listening. Again, thank you very much, Mark, for being on. Okay. Take care. And good night, everybody. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over.